welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. It's my great pleasure to bring you today a conversation with Jeremy Bernholtz. Jeremy is an Associate Professor with a joint appointment in the Communication Studies and the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Departments at Northwestern University in Chicago in the US. He also directs the Social Media Lab there. And the trigger for this conversation was the recent discussion with John Tung about reviewing. And Jeremy contributes to this discussion in, for example, looking at issues around authoring and service asymmetries and drawing attention to the unsustainability of the current review and publication models. And he has a nice way of describing this as uh, being fed by the perpetual motion machine that pushes researchers to churn out more and more papers. He calls for a greater focus on the quality of papers instead of numbers and to identify quality signifies beyond just publications. We discuss his role as conference chair of the upcoming CSCW conference, which is coincidentally about collaboration and distribution. So that's an interesting discussion. And we also shift topics to talk about his personal coming out and the pivot of his research to explore topics around gender and sexuality. And through all of these discussions, I think Jeremy's curiosity and care comes through again and again. And there's really a lot to ponder here. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining me today. And thanks for having me. And thanks so much, like I said in my email, for doing this whole series. It's been so much fun to, to listen to. It's so good to know that some, there's someone who's listening to it, I, you know, because you put it out there and you just hope that it connects and just hearing sometimes from people, you know, th- the fact that someone said something that was useful to them is reassuring and makes the, the work uh, worthwhile. And also I get the honour and the privilege of talking to people and getting to know them better. And we were just saying before we started recording that we first probably met in Canada when you were a postdoc there on a big project in about 2005. Yeah, that's right. You were, I think, maybe on the advisory board or something. Yeah, for I think so. A wide research grant with folks like mm. Saul Greenberg and Carl yeah. Gutman and others yeah. that I was, yeah. I was a postdoc for a couple of years. Yeah. But we, we, actually haven't had a lot of uh, direct contact since then other than just through normal sort of peer community stuff. And this conversation was triggered by you sending an email uh, engaging in the conversation that I had with John Tung about reviewing, which we'll come to. But first, it might be useful just to introduce yourself. Can you just say a little bit about who you are, your background? Yeah, sure. Where where you are. (laughs) Sure. So I'm Jeremy Bernholtz. I'm in Chicago right now, uh, where I'm an associate, although I could be anywhere in the world, right? In, well, indeed. But, um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm in Chicago. I'm an associate professor at Northwestern University in the communication studies department, cross-appointed in the computer science department. Um, before that, I was at Cornell University, uh, where I was in the communication department and information science program. And then, like I just said, I was a postdoc at the University of Toronto for, for a couple of years. 
uh, and did my grad work at uh, the University of Michigan in the School of Information. Before we get on to the review, I'm just curious about uh, the shift from Cornell to Northwestern because, you know, postdoc into a faculty position, but the mm-hmm. shift from a faculty position into another faculty position, which seems yeah. unusual in the U.S. a lot. Yeah, and the timing was actually terrible. I moved um, right as I would have been going up for tenure at Cornell, which has delayed um, pretty much every promotion after that. But but it wasn't because of that that I moved. Uh, what happened was uh, Cornell was great. I actually really, really liked the university, um, but it's in Ithaca, New York, which is a very small college town. And at that point, having just moved from the University of Toronto, and it was sort of my first time living in a big city and I had a great group of friends and so on. And I was just not ready to move to a small town and um, live that lifestyle. And so I tried for a while to sort of go back and forth. And I spent a lot of time in Toronto, even while I was living in Ithaca, but that didn't really work out the way that I wanted it to. And I had always had... um, ties to Northwestern, where I had done my undergrad degree and to Chicago and some colleagues. And so an opportunity came up here and I, I applied for it and it obviously has worked out. So yeah. I, I, that's why I moved. That's a very brave decision. I That's good on you because you, you weren't prioritizing career, you were prioritizing lifestyle. You know, you, yeah, you talked I mean, it, about the impact on the career. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Um, at the same time, Northwestern was hardly a step down. Um, so I'm very, I'm very lucky to be in the position that mm-hmm. I'm in and to be able to move from one great university to another. So yes, yeah. I was doing it for reasons that were personal, yeah. but it was, it also turned out to be a very good career move. Yeah. Was it a hard decision to make? Uh, no, in retrospect, it probably should have been harder given everything that I was actually thinking about. But I had been I had been so dead set on it for so long, to be honest, that it was just like when I got the call from the dean, I was like, yeah, OK. Um, I mean, we, we negotiated a little bit mm. back and forth. But mm. for the most part in my head, it was like, OK. Mm. Yeah, it just it's, it's a nice reminder that every decision we make has consequences. You know, like there, there's always sort of trade offs in every single decision in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, and I, I talk about this with students all the time. It's so hard as an early career academic to have a lot of say on where you wind up. Mm. Um, and I mean, more than talking to talking about it with um, early career colleagues, with family and friends who are not academics, um, where it's like, if you're a teacher, well, there's room for a ton of teachers in any given yeah. city or a ton of dentists or whatever. Um, but if you study one particular thing, there's room for like one of you in a big city. Yeah. Yep. And those, that room for one of you often doesn't come up all that often as well in terms of the changeover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think that's also what I often find I'm surprised about, you know, in talking to people in these conversations is how often these sorts of things work out. Like even though there aren't that many positions, there's things can work out there or people make them work out in some way. Yeah, exactly. I think if you're playing the long game, eventually uh, it does work out and you do yeah. wind up in a good place. But if, yeah. if you focus on the sort of very short term, then I, I think it can be really hard. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, as I said, the trigger for this was the email that you sent. So John Tang and I had a conversation that was triggered by our experiences being co-editors and just feeling the, the sort of the, 
burden of reviewers and you know the the community in general and you you had some uh, interesting thoughts and responses to that or or additions to add to those you know to that discussion around reviewing yeah i mean i think there are a number of issues in the community that we are starting to grapple with the consequences of around that um and i mean one of the big ones is that we I'm trying to think about how to how to put this exactly. But I think one of the big issues is that we, we're in a sort of arms race with CV length, where in order to get a job, you need to have more papers published than you did um, five years ago, than 10 years ago, and so on. And so people are publishing lots of papers. There's a lot of pressure to publish a lot of papers. And that means that if we have three reviewers on each one of those, we need a tremendous number of reviewers. Uh, but when we talk about reviewing, that's sort of volunteer service. Whereas when we talk about authoring papers, that's the thing that you must do. Mm. And so one problem I think is that the sort of priority is doing the thing that you must do. And that often pushes aside the service or volunteer thing, but in order for, did you catch that notification? Um, sorry. <laughs> so, that's, that's life. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so like I was saying in in order to make one happen, in order to get the papers published, like people mm. need to review. And so, yeah. but if that is getting deprioritized, then it becomes harder and harder to find people to review. Uh, and also, and I think I mentioned this in my email too, the the cost structure of reviewing is such that like it costs an author very little. I mean, once you've written a paper, it costs very little to submit it, even yeah. if it's not like an amazing paper. Um, but you're basically pushing the cost of reviewing that onto the community and onto several people in the community. Yeah. And so we have this system where more people are trying to publish more and more papers, um, often sending them to often sending several papers to the same conference. They're not volunteering to review a ton of papers. Uh, and we have a system where we can sort of keep throwing papers um, into the ether and hoping that something sticks. And that to me just doesn't seem sustainable. No, it's not, is it, at all? Yeah, and I, in, in your email, you talked about this in terms of the asymmetry um, yeah, between yeah, exactly. the, the, the effort. It's not sustainable. And, yeah, the whole arms race and, you know, because exactly for the thing that you just said before about there's usually only sort of that one position in your, that, that sort of captures your research area. So there, and we're educating so many more PhD students these days as well and creating this pressure and there's this mythology that the academic position is you know the the thing that people should aim for um it also is concerning isn't it about the quality of reviews and so we've got this perverse situation where we've got to have more papers on our CV because we've got to be more competitive. And it's, it's this, it is this crazy arms race. that's just going to implode at some point. Is that a mixed metaphor anyway? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know whether a race can implode, but the, uh, the, the, the paradox is that you've got increasing challenges, finding good reviewers and then papers that are getting accepted may not have the same sort of quality signifier that this arms race is trying to say is important. Yeah, we need high quality papers and you've got to get them all on your CV. Yet, you know, we're setting up a system that's heading towards exactly the opposite. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. And it's and it's also become, I mean, I would argue that the, the number of papers is not actually a signal of what it's intending to no. signal. Yeah. Um, I've been on, I mean, at this point, I've been on several hiring committees and there have been several times where we hired people that had very impressive CVs um, and gave eh, maybe okay talks and we didn't wind up hiring them. And I've really come to believe that you just need a, a smaller number of very, very good papers yeah. and to make a contribution yeah. and to make a name for yourself that way. Because I, th I think there was a period where you really could get noticed by publishing a lot of papers at CHI or CSCW or sort of whatever the top venues in your field mm. are. I think in our field, that era is starting to fade away because there are so many people who have that number of papers and the way that the way that I find that candidates distinguish themselves is by giving an excellent talk or making an mm. excellent contribution, having well-cited mm. papers. Um, and I personally, again, as a search committee member, I just find that so much more compelling. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's encouraging that your experience of some hiring committees has been that they're just not swayed by the numbers. But I think when I see it, having impact is in the filtering process in the beginning. You know, if you've got 70 applications for a position and you want to send, you know, some small subset of them out for peer review or, you know, getting a referee reports on and then interviewing, you need to really bring that down. And unfortunately, or have you seen any other mechanisms for, you know, being able to do that filtering down? Because it's a lot of what I see is still, unfortunately, still too focused on um, the publication record. Yeah, no, I mean, unfortunately, I do think that's right a lot. And I like to tell my students, like, if you do absolutely everything that we tell you, uh, you need to do and you write lots of papers and so on, um, that means somebody will probably look at your CV. Um, and then after that, like, it's, you know, you need to have done good work mm. or you need to do something mm. else. And or it's just beyond your control because it's going to mm. come down to the politics of the search and the department and all of that. Yeah. And it's not yeah. because of anything you did. I mean, I, I really try to make a concerted effort to, to look for other signals um, of quality work. Uh, I agree that very often it does come down to length. But like, you know, there there are venues where you notice if somebody's got a couple pieces Um there are things that can come up in letters. There are things that can come up in statements and so on that make it clear that somebody's interesting, but I agree. You have to, you have to look for it because it's not yeah. something that you, yeah. and I mean, the other place where this comes up, especially in our community, and this is, this is a bit of a shift, but the other thing is that there are, there are all these folks who spent their careers arguing that highly selective conferences are just as good as journals in other fields um, and having lots of highly selective conference papers is a good thing. Yeah. And they've con convinced provost offices and president's offices and reviewers to recognize that. And now when folks are saying, well, maybe it's not all about that, um, you know, that's that's also an issue. And so there there have been some interesting conversations around that that I've seen and been part of as well. That's you think is signaling a bit of a shift? Um, I have not, I, I, I don't think there, I don't think there's as much of a shift there as I would mm. like to see. Um, mm. but I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that the fact that there are so many senior people who spent so much of their careers arguing for that, I think it's a very hard thing to let go of. Yeah. Yeah. 
I know. And I, I, I see the tensions in the debates when some of these sort of, you know, top-tier conferences try to increase the acceptance rate and the pushback is always in terms of exactly those arguments that, you know, like we, how can we convince our provost or whatever that this is a good venue if we're accepting 40%. Um, right, but of course, that's fundamentally that's a fundamentally arbitrary argument it's, because yeah. there could be like if you have a larger if you have a larger pool of papers, mm -hmm. it could be that yeah. a lot of them are excellent. Yeah. Particularly at, I mean, like CSCW, as you know, has been experimenting with a revise and resubmit cycle, and if a paper has been through a revision and has seen the same reviewers twice, you know, it's reasonable to think that more papers could make it over that bar. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't get translated into yeah. the into the accept rate. Yeah. It's just it is really worrying the the impact that it's having, especially on younger academics, younger early career researchers, PhD students in the pressures that they're feeling around this. What do you have any thoughts on solutions or different directions? Yeah, accept yeah, all papers I mean, and just let the community discuss them or yeah i mean i i, I don't think that we want to um i don't think that we want to correct quite that hard but i this is something that i that i definitely think about and i mean i i think part of it comes down to what we were saying a few minutes ago in terms of we just when we're on search committees when we're writing tenure letters and so on like it's in our collective interest to not be obsessed with numbers yeah. Um, and to focus on the contribution and to focus on the quality of the work. Um, as a junior person, I think that it's possible. I think it's very easy to get caught up in the sort of perpetual motion machine mentality <laughs> where you're sort of constantly spinning out new papers and like throwing five at them at every deadline. So you can see, so you can have something. And I mean, my experience in the first part of my career was very much like that. Um, my experience in the last few years is that I've written a lot fewer papers and I've found that a lot more of them have gotten in, to be honest. And so I don't know if that's unusual, but my guess is that if we focused on writing a smaller number of better papers, mm. that your accept rate probably is going to go up. And so that may help. And then as far as the, the question around conferences and should we accept everything, Probably not, but I like the movement away from deadlines. CSCW is gradually moving toward a more journal-like model where you could submit theoretically anytime. Right now, there are four um, quarterly deadlines. I'm not sure four deadlines helps, but I think people get so keyed up on deadlines and it's like, oh, I've got to have something for the CSCW deadline mm. or the CHI deadline. Mm. They just start writing things. Mm. Um, but if you can submit a CHI paper anytime or you can submit a CSCW paper anytime, um, some of that pressure goes away. And so you can submit the work when it's ready. And my guess mm -hmm. is that, that that probably helps too. I'm actually super curious to see, the CSCW has been doing this for a little over a year now, I think. Um, I'm actually super curious to see the data on what the numbers look like with four submission deadlines. Because you can imagine a world where it just increases the number of darts that get thrown because there are more boards. If you yeah. think of the yeah. deadline as a sort of dartboard. Um, but you could also imagine a world where um, the same papers are um, the same papers are getting fewer submissions, 
or where we're broadening uh, to other communities and so on, or we have a more diverse pool of papers and so on. We just don't know. There's a lot of, um, there's a mm-hmm. lot of possible scenarios. But I, th- mm-hmm. I think if we start to look at the data on some of the experiments that are being tried and think carefully about what seems to be working well, then we can, like, to me, that's the way to move toward yeah. changes. It's not yeah. to be sort of radical, but to yeah. gradually make yeah. informed decisions. So you're pointing to the sort of the gradual, you know, sort of uh, experiment, reflect, try, which is sort of a longer-term systemic structural um, shift that may or may not happen. But you're also pointing to acting now in whatever capacity you have as, as an individual because, you know, I loved the thing that you said about it's in our collective interest for each of us in our situations, whether it's reviewing CVs or hiring committee or whatever, not to be obsessed with the numbers. And, yeah, so we can shift some of those conversations just in the committees that we're on. Did you want to respond to anything there before I? Um, well, I, was, I mean, I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it's a classic sort of social dilemma problem where it's in uh, your individual best interest to do what's not in the community's collective best interest. Um, and of course, like in economics, they deal with this by charging you to submit papers, right? Um, and provide an incentive for you to think about um, what's going on. So, and, you know, I think it would be interesting to try experiments like that. When, whenever you charge for something, you introduce all sorts mm. of issues around various mm. inequalities and so on. Um, but I think there are a lot of interesting experiments to be tried and mm. to look at sort of what do we know about solving social dilemmas. Yeah. Oh God, it's complex, isn't it? Like you just, the idea of charging for submission sounds appealing because it, it just is that it creates a stopping point just to go, is this worth handing over? Is this paper good enough to hand over money? Do I believe it enough? You know, is that a contribution that I want to make? And you're then opening up this other can of worms around equity, accessibility, uh, what you know twenty dollars for one person may be nothing, and for another it may be a huge amount of money in different funding situations mm. yeah, I mean different funding situations different different countries with yeah, very different where the same yeah. amount of money translates into yeah. um, very different things and i I mean I also remember sitting in a session. God, I want to say it was at Kai in Paris, maybe, but I don't know why that's triggering. But there was a session on sort of uh, encouraging reviews and solving the review problem. And there was a book editor from MIT Press or one of the big presses there. And somebody said, well, how do you how do the book publishers do it? And she said, we pay reviewers um, and they get them done very quickly. Mm. Um and you know, that that's an interesting thing you can do too when you start introducing yeah. dollars in. Situation. Yeah. So there's all kinds of ways, I think, that this situation, that yeah. the scenario could be changed. I'm not saying we should rush into anything at all, um, but I do think there are a lot of different mechanisms that we can and probably should mm. be thinking about yeah. exploring um, and and sort of teasing out their possible implications mm. and what thinking about what might work well for us in the long term. What about review karma? You know, so uh, I know that many of our academic conferences don't have. Uh, the financial capacity to pay. I mean, you're struggling just to make the budget fit the you know, the conference offering you want to create. Um, you know, so a lot of and other journals are using the this you know, the review karma mechanism. What do you think of that one? 
Yeah, I mean, so fundamentally, that's the same thing. It's just creating a different kind of currency, right? Mm. And so when you try to create a type of currency like that, it has to be one that um, somebody that's interesting to you will recognize. Mm. And so that's an interesting possibility if universities recognize Review Karma as something that's valuable or if you can translate that into something, whether it's respect from your peers whether it's, you know, greater likelihood of promotion in your job, whether it's, you know, improved access to some, mm-hmm. um, some academic resource, I'm not sure. But I don't, like, I don't, I don't know that there are going to be too many people sort of in it for the, um, like, for the stars on yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and things yeah. like that. Um, but you can imagine tying that to things that are interesting and, and valuable and important. Mm. Which I don't think has really happened enough yet, because I know that I'm not particularly interested in you know gathering review karma it just seems like one more thing i have to do or keep an eye on and you know exactly exactly um but i'm but i'm guessing you still say yes to reviews as do i right well so this is a, a dilemma i had just i don't know last week i one of my students submitted a paper to a conference um and you know in principle, I really believe in if you submit, you know, if you're asking work from the community, you've got to contribute. And I got an email saying, okay, when we submitted to the long paper track, I got an email saying uh, we're now looking for reviewers for the short paper track. As you submitted, a, as you're an author on a paper, uh, you know, will you sign up to review? And I I felt sick to the stomach because I just I cannot take on any more at the moment and I'm doing a lot of other peer service in other sort of big roles that's taking a lot of time. Um, and I actually sat on the email for a couple of days because I normally like responding straight away and just said, look, you know, I, I really can't. I really appreciate that you're doing this. I can't. I did sort of spell out some of the other things I was doing and I said I can I can certainly be as backup. And I'm still trying to work out whether that was a good enough reason because one of the things that I think that model of review karma and if you submit your review, it doesn't take account of the bigger picture of your peer service. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And and the fact that we still, you know, like the one thing we have no control over is the number of seconds in a day. And yeah, yeah. So I do, I do, I definitely do say yes to reviewing, but uh, <laughs> not all the time. And sometimes, you know, like I, that email was very effective because I felt very guilty. It felt bad, but uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say like, I mean, I, I also say no, uh, some fraction of the time, but I was an associate editor for a journal for a little while. Um, and I was just shocked by how often people were saying no, um, like to the point where I've just decided I'm not going to be an associate editor and I'm just going to say yes to more review requests instead because uh, that easier and makes yeah. me happier. And yeah. I feel like I'm contributing, contributing. but there are a lot of, um, yeah, there are a lot of people who are very quick to say no. And you're lucky that you get the response, you know. The... Right. Yeah, um, it's very it's very tricky. But I do think, um, I, th- I think the fundamental point that we open this with, mm-hmm. that um, this is not sustainable or scalable the way yeah. that it's playing out right now. Yeah. And who's got the luxury of just saying no, no, no all the time? 
you know, without doing uh, other service? You know, that's that's a question I think that comes with your asymmetry concern. Yeah, well, and it's it's not only asymmetric, but the information is asymmetric too. Um, so when somebody says no to you, they don't have to give a reason. And even if they did have to give a reason, like mm. what do you know about the situation yeah. or how long yeah. they're different careers take and so on? Yeah. And, and you and John talked about this a little bit too. Um, we, there's not transparency around. So like I'm associate department chair. I direct my department's undergrad program. I sit on several committees at Northwestern. I'm the general co-chair of CSCW right now. Like, I, you know, lots of service things. Okay. Um, but when some, like a, I'm also in the field of communication, when a communication journal editor sends me a paper, they don't know any of that. Um, and they don't know what those commitments look like, et cetera. Mm. Um, and so the asymmetry of information, I think, matters too, because you don't want somebody to think that you're just somebody who says no all the time. Yeah. But if you're on the periphery of multiple communities, it's really hard to um, to not seem that way. Sometimes yeah. I would bet. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to navigate, especially when you have a concern for being one of the people who are taking a collective interest and wanting to contribute to being part of the solutions and making it better. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So no easy solutions, but a conversation that I think we need to keep having and raising awareness on and seeing what everyone can do in their own context for saying yes or reviews or saying no in a timely way or uh, changing conversations in committees or lobbying provosts to look for other measures beyond just papers and so on yeah exactly i think i mean i think i think it's very easy to um we're, we're a community of smart people for the most part right um and i think it's very easy to accept a bunch of assumptions when you come into the community that sort of this is the way things are and these are the things you need to do and these are the things that are worth changing um and i think that we get blind to some processes um and assumptions that we make when we come into the field mm. and sometimes it takes sort of looking around and being like oh wait <laughs> this isn't going to work yeah. it's like if you've lived in a house for years and years and years um and you know the paint chips and the roof leaks a little bit and so on and you're in it for 20 years and then somebody comes in they're like you live in a pit yeah. um, <laughs> i think that's yeah. a little bit yeah. I think that's a little bit what's happening to the system. And it again, we're smart, observant people. If we look around and have these conversations, we can come mm-hmm. up with a way to fix this. Yeah. Like this is this is a solvable problem. Um, but it takes stepping back, noticing, and talking about it. And mm-hmm. we're, I think a lot of people are starting to do that. Certainly, yeah. that's I think what led to a lot of the experiments in the CSTW community, which I think have been very successful. Are you doing anything in particular with, you said, your general chair for the next conference? And we should just say CCW for people who don't know is computer-supported cooperative, cooperative work. It's a, um, a conference series that's been running since the 80s. And, yeah. yeah, are you doing any particular experiments, whether it's about reviewing or conference models generally, given COVID challenges and experiences and opportunities? Yeah, well, so our big- our big experiment is to um, to plan an online conference when we have the luxury of time to plan it. Um, last year's chairs did an amazing job, but they did not expect to be planning a, um, yeah. an online conference um, until not that long before the conference. Uh, we have the blessing and the curse of having the time to try to do it right. Uh, and so our big experiment is 
um, trying to find new ways to get people to engage socially, to, um, to, to come to our poster session and engage with poster presenters, to mm-hmm. incentivize student volunteers to be part of an online conference. Um, a lot of the decisions around reviewing and papers themselves at CSCW at this point get made by the steering committee committee and the editors because it's gone to this annual journal yeah. model. So we're, we as chairs are not, uh, Louis Chilfi, who's my co-chair, we as chairs are not super involved in that process. Mm-hmm. But um, like I say, our big experiment yeah. is trying to get the online thing right. And that is, um, yeah. that is a fun, challenging experiment. Yeah. And social media is your research area. Yeah. So what, um, what are you thinking of for that? Because I know that that's been one of the least satisfactory elements for me attending online conferences is you're just in a Zoom room listening to a talk and sometimes the social attempts seem to be quite contrived and I feel uncomfortable. Yeah, so we have um, we have definitely heard that feedback um, and we are working to address it. The first thing we did was to appoint um, a task force of uh, smart people who mm-hmm. could devote a lot more time than we could to thinking about um, this very specific problem. So we've got our virtual attendance task force, including two people who are doing nothing but thinking about uh, social activities. Um, and we've been talking to other conference chairs. And I mean, basically what we're thinking about is... Um, one is more structured activities where people are doing something together, whether it's like a scavenger hunt or a trivia nice. game or, or things like that, yeah. that give people things to mix. Two is ways for people to have random encounters as you would in the hallway at a hotel mm-hmm. or at a reception or something like that. And a lot of the new conference platforms have good functionality for facilitating this. So if you see somebody, you can sort of click on them and schedule a meeting with them. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you, come to an event that's specifically targeted to be social, there are ways that um, we can mix people into um, into groups that are kind of rotating. And, it, you know, I don't think we should try to replicate face-to-face, like we all know in years of CSCW, that that's never going to happen. Um, but I think if we look at sort of, well, what's really important about what's happening in the face-to-face environment, it's that it's very easy to move from conversation to conversation. It's very easy to look for somebody that you really want to network with as a student or something like mm. that. And so those are the kinds of opportunities that we're going to, that we're going to focus on providing, right. I think. Yeah. It's interesting because CCW is exactly the research community that's been studying distributed work and collaboration and interaction at a distance. Yeah, since the 80s and here, there are the real world challenges in their own backyard, in our own backyard. Yeah, yeah I was, um, oh, I was, I, I mean, I had so many conversations about this uh, last spring, especially when suddenly everything shifted online. And I was joking with a colleague, like, because there were all these CSCW systems that did exactly what everybody's doing mm. now, right? Mm. Um, but they were always deemed inferior to face to face. And so I was saying, well, we were just asking the wrong evaluation question. If we had just asked people if there were a pandemic and you absolutely had to use the system, <laughs> nothing, would you? And they would say, yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. And, and then, you know, then all the yeah. systems would have been successful, yeah. right? And it's, I'm reminded of the Holland and Stanetta paper from classic paper from years ago about beyond yeah. being there and the value of not, you know, just exploiting the, the, the medium that you're in rather than trying to replicate. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that paper. I actually um, I drew on it unexpectedly. Uh, I drew on it when I was talking to prospective first year students, because like I said, I direct our undergrad program. And so mm. one of the things that I do 
is talk to high school seniors every year who are applying to Northwestern. And so one of the things I told them last year was like, look at, we get it. This is a really, really weird time to be a high school student. And there's a ton of things you're not going to get that you expected. Um, but my challenge for you is to try to find what we in HCI call the beyond being there moments and ways that you can on Zoom or doing whatever you can find things that are actually going to be better than they would have mm. been. And then you mm. tell us what those are when you get here. Yeah, great. Uh, that's, a, that's a great attitude just generally for life is that, you know, the trade-offs. You know, yes, yep. something's lost and, and what's gained or what are the possibilities. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So if I can just shift the conversation a little bit, I, I noticed that you're a co-author on a, a SIG, a special interest group proposal with one of my very dear colleagues, Kata Spiel, around queering Kai. And uh, you can see the shift in your research agenda too around issues around social media and LGBTQI type um, issues and, and presentation of self and so on. Can you talk a little bit about uh your journey to the, to these areas, both in terms of research interests and your own identity as an academic. Yeah. So, yeah. So for me, I mean, for, for a long time, I was very pragmatic in my research interests. Um, and I, I mean, as I think at some level, you sort of have to be, um, probably that's changing a little bit. Now, pre-tenure is it a pre-tenure pressure for pragmatism or? Yeah, yeah. I think there's I think there's pressure to do things that are seen as publishable and fundable, um, without too much question uh, or controversy. And certainly there certainly there are fields like sexuality and gender studies and so on where it would have been very easy early career to do some of the work that I've done recently. Um, and I know from looking at um, CVs. Uh, for folks and also mentoring students that it's actually gotten a lot easier to do this kind of work in our community mm. over the past few years. Um, but around the, t- but around the time that I was starting out, um, I don't know that it would have been super advisable to do, um, to do some of this work, but also to be honest, like I had never really thought about it because there was my, I mean, I, w- I was a bit late to come out. It wasn't until I was 25 or so in grad mm. school. Right. Um, so it, took me some time to get comfortable in my own skin, I think, much less like doing research on this topic that where yeah. I was kind of still grappling yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, and then even as it became clear that there were interesting questions, there were still questions for me about, well, is this something I really want to do? And is it advisable in the field? And what will people think of this? Um, and is this sort of an okay thing to do? Um and then at some point, this was when I was at Cornell, I remember um, I was looking at, this all started with two things. One was I was looking at uh, Craigslist personal ads and there was just this fascinating, like if you look at the, in Ithaca, New York, if you looked in 2007 or eight at the, at the Craigslist personal ads, um, the number of men seeking men ads was just hugely greater than any of the other categories, including men seeking women, women seeking mm-hmm. men. Like there were just all these ads. And I, there was, I knew there was something interesting about that. I wasn't sure what it was, um, but I started reading those ads. I actually paid an undergrad to write a little um, script that scraped them 
And so we counted them, we looked at words in them. Um, around that time, an undergrad, uh, Charlie Abbott, who's now actually a UX researcher, um, but he came to me and was interested in writing an undergrad honors thesis. Um, and he's gay uh, and was interested possibly in a, in, a, in a topic around how gay men are using technology. And so we started trying to do a project related to Craigslist and trying to sort of, you know, get a hold of these guys and see if they would talk mm-hmm. to us. And none of them would talk to us. Um, and eventually we settled on doing, this was around the time uh, that Grindr was being introduced as an app. Um, this is an app that gay men used to meet each other for those who don't know. Um, and so we decided to do the study on that. Um, and Charlie's honors thesis actually wound up becoming um, a journal article that we published with Courtney Blackwell, who's a student at Northwestern. That's actually, that's now been cited almost 400 times uh, wow. about Grindr. Um, and then the other thing that changed this was, um, again, at Cornell, right when I was starting to think about this topic, I think before Charlie had approached me, I was having a conversation with uh, Fred Turner, who's at Stanford. He was visiting us to give a talk. Um, and he was like, well, so what are you thinking about? Like what, I don't even remember how we got on this topic, but he, he may have said like, well, you know, what are your mm. like crazy ideas or something like mm. that? And I was like, well, I've been looking at Craigslist ads, to be honest. And I feel like there's something interesting there. Um, and he was like, well, you should, you know, you should do research on that. And I was like, I could study that. Um, really? And he was like, well, yeah, like, here's some things that you should read. Like you should look at Mary Gray's work, for example, you should look at some of this other work. And so I started reading articles and like reading books and it was like, oh yeah, like there are people who study this, who are at least at the edges of my community, if not at the core of it. Mm. Um, yeah, I could, um, I could try this. And so that, that combination of things, having sort of Charlie's undergrad thesis as a vehicle for getting it going combined with the sort Mm. of fascination with Craigslist combined with Fred as a visitor saying, yeah, like, why would you not do that? Um, In fact, like if you were at Stanford, there would be money to um, fund that kind of work. Um, And that, uh, those two things were really eye opening for me. So that's, that's kind of how that transition happened. So am I, so there's an extrapolation of that that says you're fascinated with the the Craigslist, what's going on there, and if you've got spare time, that's where you're always spending your time. But then when you're putting on your work hat, you're doing other stuff that there's a little bit less energy about, and you're going, yeah, this is this is my work I have to do. And Fred gave you permission to sort of go to bring together what where you are naturally curious and interested. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Um, and that is very much how it felt. And, um, and there have been a few things like that in the last few years. I, um, I've, I did a study of, um, so I happened to notice, I was poking around Instagram and happened to notice this account that was like, the purpose of it was connecting young gay men, gay and bi men on Instagram. Um, and so sort of became aware of that, started just sort of following what they were doing. Um, and realized that it was it was popular. It had this sort of self-enforcing mechanism. There was a lot going on there that was interesting. Mm. And so it was like, well, I could probably like talk to these guys and kind of see what's going on. And so submitted an IRB protocol. Um, at that point, it felt like work, mm. right? Um, but wound up talking <laughs> to these guys. It was really fascinating um, to sort of learn what was going on. Um, or another thing that we did, um, 
Well, one thing that we found in talking to guys on Grinder that was surprising to me, given um, given my experience, was that when we talked to especially like younger guys, for the most part, they weren't worried that other people would know that they were gay. What they were worried about on Grinder was that other people would think they were a slut. Um, mm. And that to me was a really interesting shift. But I also wanted to talk to people in a setting where they were where they might or felt they might or were likely to experience some stigma um, or even like legal trouble or so on. And mm-hmm. so that's where yeah. I, I connected with folks in India a couple of years ago. And so that that's kind of where that came from um, is this idea of exploring this similar topic, but in a very different cultural context mm-hmm. where, where there might be some, some interesting mm-hmm. contrasts. I love the way you have just taken this forward. Uh, and it's something that you really care about and enjoy doing. And 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 you can hear the enthusiasm and curiosity. Like the curiosity, I think, is what I, I get at a lot. And how many of us are sitting doing work that isn't driving that energy, that you know, that energetic curiosity that makes us get excited. And yeah, you know, to connect yeah, no, to it's that. been it's been a lot of fun, and I. Mm. Like I had a call. Um, so one thing about having collaborators in India, uh, if you're on this side of the planet, is that you very often have calls very early in the morning. So I had a, <laughs> I had a very early call this morning um, with my collaborators in India. And oh, my gosh, I just learned so much from every conversation. Because mm-hmm. um, right now we we just did another series of interviews. And so we're looking at transcripts and, you know, I'll find something where um, a participant is talking about like their wife or something like that. And I'm like, well, what is, what does this mean? And they'll be like, mm. Oh, this, per- this participant was married. Um, I'm like, well, do you think their wife knows that they're on grinder? And they're like, no, she doesn't know. <laughs> um, but this isn't uncommon. Uh, or maybe she does mm. know or things like mm. that. Like just all the context that they mm. bring, or if I were trying to do this on my own, like I would know nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've just learned so much from, from yeah. that project and from working with them. We've been working together for four years now, which yeah. is crazy. To is it funded? Uh, so um, it is locally. So Northwestern um, has um, an endowment fund that was mm. given by an alum that is to be used exclusively for research related, social science research related to LGBTQ issues. Oh, I- and so how good is that and they're not large um but um because of some of the economic differences a relative what is a relatively small grant here can go a very long way toward paying people's salaries uh for research in india um and so we've actually been able to get a few of those grants Mm. um and just by scraping together chunks of money here and there we've been able to do a lot of work Mm. that's amazing Your own personal experience, you know, having come out and as an academic, have there been, you know, you talked about stigma just before, you know, has there been, have there been any particular personal challenges or issues for you in navigating that? Not really. Yeah. Not really. I mean, I, like I, like I was pretty, um, again, like I'm, it's, Probably if I went back and looked, I would find all kinds of things where it's like, mm. what were you thinking? Or wait, <laughs> you put up with that. Um, but I like I was so like I said, I came out late. Like I was just so used to that. Like I was mm. so used to sort of 
um, you know, living in a predominantly straight world and sort of doing my thing off to the side that I, there were probably a lot of things that I honestly didn't notice, but I never felt, I never really felt like that was an issue. Like if I went back now through knowing what I know now and, you know, with today's lens, yeah, I'm sure that I would find things. Um, but it's never, it's not like anybody ever like, you know, cast me aside or I felt like I was being cast aside by the community or anything like that ever. I mean, if anything, um, you know, relative to, uh, like relative to like mainstream computer science, like the HCI community is, is very, um, sort of open and welcoming to to Mm. folks with different perspectives in my experience. And that was, that was certainly my experience. Like once I found the people to hang out with at conferences, um, some of whom I already knew from, from grad school at Michigan. Um, that was actually in sort of another source of community and meeting people. Mm. Um, but it was interesting at, at that time. And this is only like 10 or 11 years ago. Right. Mm. But at that time, like very few of us were doing work on queer related issues. Mm. Um, and that's been a huge change. And uh, Judd Brubaker and I will off. So he's, uh, been a collaborator on some of this work too. And he and I will often reminisce about Kai, I think in Vancouver in 2011, maybe where we were sort of talking about uh, one of the early grinder studies that we did together and thinking like, Oh my God, we could publish this. Like we could do this. <laughs> um, now like both of us have written several papers on the topic and it's like, Oh, remember when we didn't even think this was possible. It's so we're a growing community, a learning community. It's changing. And in yeah. the, in that spirit, how how could it further change and be better? That's a good question. I think that um, I think there I, I think there are a couple dimensions of change. I think that it's very important for the community to be open to diverse perspectives, and I think we've I think we've done a really good job of making strides in that direction over the past couple of years. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about uh, Jillian Hayes' um, Kai talk um, for this, I believe it was the service award that that she won. Um, Social impact, I think. Social impact. That's mm-hmm. it. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I'm thinking of Jillian's social impact award talk at Kai, where, I mean, one of the things she really stressed was don't just study communities, collaborate with communities and work with communities. And I think that we're, I think that we're getting better at that. I think there's Mm -hmm. room for improvement. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that our community has certainly opened up um, and welcomed in a lot more people and a lot more types of work. Uh, But anytime you do that and anytime there's change that, that happens that fast, Mm -hmm. um, there are strains. And I think the next dimension is learning how to talk to each other and having um, having constructive conversations about what is the right way to move mm. forward and to approach yeah. uh, these situations and to be a diverse, supportive, understanding community. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there, there have been some challenges in that regard because um, some people want to see change very quickly uh, or want to adopt a particular perspective mm. and believe that everybody should adopt that perspective. And you know, that's a reasonable thing to think, but you can't, you can't force people to think the way that, Mm. that you do. And so I think there are some hard conversations ahead. Um, I, my hope is that they will be constructive conversations. Mm. So I think, I think, I think the two things for us to think about as a community is one continuing to be open. And I hope that we'll continue to make strides Mm. there. Um, And two, to really focus on constructive dialogue 
Yeah. Yeah. I love the constructive. And that it's not necessarily going to be easy, you know, because it's about exploring. It, it, it would be good to bring that curiosity to it, you know, like mm-hmm. being curious about different perspectives. And I noticed you had a blog post as well about, you know, the importance of understanding different perspectives and really, and you seem to bring that attitude to a lot of what you do that you've talked about here. I try to, I try to, I confess that I'm not always good at it, but um, I do like to throw myself, like there's something I really enjoy about throwing myself in a situation where all of my assumptions are very likely to be wrong and then Mm. trying to figure out um, sort of where to go from there. And that, that's the other part of me that craved a project in a place like India um, Mm. to, to sort of go into that very unfamiliar situation Mm. and sort of figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I very much try to bring that perspective to to the things that I do, but it's not always, it's not always easy or effective. So what that, that reflects sort of certain values and, and, uh, you know, that you bring to your work, what, what might be other key, another key sort of driving value for you in your work? Um, well, I think, I mean, I think common to many people, like I want to, I really try to do work that addresses real problems, but but does it in a way that um, can have sort of that can impact our broader understanding of of phenomena in the world. Mm. Um, so I think a lot about Pasteur's quadrant, uh, Don Stokes' book, where he talks about um, doing things that bo- that are both applied and solve a real problem in the world, but also contribute to our phenomenological or theoretical understanding. Mm. Yeah. Of, of what's going on. And so I really try to, to, to do that in, in things that I mm-hmm. do. Um, and then also to, to look broadly for different instances of similar problems um, and to think about what we can learn from looking mm-hmm. at this version of this problem mm-hmm. versus this version of this problem. Because if you focus too narrowly on one very specific problem, again, you can make assumptions um, about how, how things work that, that turn out not to be, that yeah. turn out not to be very true. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you heard Aaron's um, conversation where he talked about his superpowers. So what what would you say are the superpowers that you bring to that then uh, in applying that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that it's, I think that one of the things that I bring to situations is um, an almost, particularly in a situation that I know nothing about, um, an almost naive sort of curiosity mm. um, and a very strong desire to understand what's going on and being very willing to ask questions and kind of figure out um, like what's going on here? <laughs> what is this yeah. thing that is happening? Like I think that, I, and, and also being willing to sort of question at every stage. Like, I think that what's happening is that this is affecting this and this is affecting this, but how would I know that that's true? And how I, I drive my students nuts when I questions <laughs> to their papers. Cause it's like, um, you know, they'll say like, you know, there's been this study and this study and this study therefore. And it's like, well, there's four leaps in the logic there. How do you know um, that that's true? And that, that's kind of the way that I look at, um, I mean, 
blessing and curse, right? Mm. Kind of superpower. But that's kind of the way that I look at everything is just like trying to understand it and trying to sort of pick it apart mm. um, and figure out what's going on and ask questions. Um, I've driven like my my collaborators in India are extraordinarily patient and they like we enjoy asking each other questions uh, and that's been a lot of fun. I've driven tour guides crazy um, <laughs> where they're just trying to recite their history for me. And I'm like, well, wait, did this king know this king? Like, how did that work? Like, tell me about that. And they're like, can I just like tell you what happened? <laughs> so, so I think that's probably the biggest that's thing. Lovely. And then also like, I think from that, you get a sort of there's a certain ability to express that because like when you can break something down at that level and sort of understand, or at least convince yourself that you understand a Mm. little bit of what's going on, Mm. then you can describe it in a way that other people can understand. Mm. Um, And that's one of the things I try to do in writing and in, and in teaching too, is Mm. just get down to the very, very essence of what's happening and then build up from there and look at how we can, um, how we can Mm. sort of layer on top of that and explain something that's quite complex. Mm. So that's that ability to do that is a good superpower to have as a teacher, as a lecturer, and a researcher. You know, both the sort of curiosity and the being able to distill and 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 then communicate back out the key points. I think so. I hope so. Mm. <laughs> Make it understandable. And looking at time, it, it always yeah. just disappears. Is there? Anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to bring up or discuss or say at this point? I don't think so. I feel like we've, co- I mean, you know, there are like, we could, talk, there are lots of things we could talk about, but I, I feel like we've hit on a couple of, um, I feel like we've hit on a couple of good topics. Like both of these are things that uh, both sort of themes in the conversation are things that I care about a lot. So I'm glad we got to to cover them. And I'm really grateful for the for the that you reached out um, and connected in response to John's chat. And it's been great just having the time just to sit down and chat with you. So thank you for all that you are doing in the community, like the service work with the Kai stuff, the continuing this conversation, the following your curiosity and your passions and your interests, and yep. So thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for, this has been fun. And thank you for all the work that you've been doing on this and, um, and all the service work that you mentioned as well. It is appreciated. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. 